sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. It's Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. I'm Brian. And I'm Murdoch. Welcome to the show, everybody. We're in the holiday spirit-ish. Mm. We're almost there. With, with holiday spirits. Uh, tonight, we don't typically talk about what we're drinking. I feel like there's too many podcasts that do that. But I will say, tonight, I've spiked the cherry Coke, folks. It's about to get interesting. Hey, and you have cherry coke. You have cherry coke. Some cherry coke in something. I have something in cherry coke. Yes. No. I mean, listen. You you can take the redneck out of the guy, but you can't take the guy out of the redneck, or whatever that phrase is. Vice versa. Uh, so I shouts to North Carolina. We get a lot of letters from North Carolina. A lot of listeners in North Carolina. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to talk. Thanks so much for bringing it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, so many people. It, like, we get a work? lot. And I don't know why that is from all over Hickory, Raleigh. We hear from a lot of folks. I do want to shout if there's anybody from Golden Valley, which I, I'm not entirely sure where that is, but I at some point was gifted a bottle of Defiant. It is a distillery in Golden Valley, North Carolina, and I'd like to go visit it because it's like my favorite whiskey these days, even though we're in Kentucky, and I have access to tons of bourbon, which I do in- indeed love. Um, I have been drinking a lot of Defiant. That's what's in the Cherry Coke tonight with a little splash of Amaretto. It's good, guys. I mean, it's it's sweet tooth shit, but it's good. Yeah, the, when you throw in the Amaretto, you've made me you've made me think about the drink differently oh, than yeah. just you like you know Cherry Coke on top of something. Cherry Coke so. and whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, yeah. okay, so it, it is. It's the holidays. It's the holiday season. Um, it, last week, last year, you know, you weren't around a lot during the holidays last year. I believe Phil Medley was around, and we yeah. we we did a deep dive on Band Aid. Uh, do they know it's Christmas? Um, That's right. Yeah, we did. I think we'll post that as a retold later this week. So if you've not heard that, um, it's a lot of fun, but it's hokey. It's hokey shit. And I thought, it sounds great, dude. You don't think that sounds hokey? Um, sort of. Sort of. It might be the hokiest song ever written. The, the, um, the chorus is insepid i don't know insepid i don't know what to say about the chorus but the solo parts it's like oh my god there there's everyone that i love like sick okay. like okay you know so the performers that yes that- the song itself is garbage okay okay mid, I, I mid- will, jury bob geldoff they wrote a garbage song and they got really lucky because they got a lot of cool people to be involved the lyrics make no sense we talked about all this you know it we don't need to rehash it right because stars by hearing aid that's real <laughs> a real message in there <laughs> Sometimes in the night, of course you're gonna bring. Take a look at the skies above you. Of course you're gonna bring it back to here in aid. I mean, with good reason. But okay, so here's my thought: those guys all didn't do coke for a whole day. Probably (laughs) had no makeup on. Showed up. There was they had like press stuff. Like you know, you get to see. Oh my god, metal guys with no makeup on when they all wore makeup. Yeah. Oh man. So here, here's what I'm thinking. Instead. Of talking about hokey Christmas shit. So North Carolina. Well, I mean, we've already talked about North Carolina. I, I'm I'm down for that, but let's instead talk about the birth of hip hop. I, I feel like that's Christmassy in its own way. Uh, do Do you know the single song responsible for hip hop music becoming one of the most dominant forces in commercial entertainment? Uh, isn't the hip hop the hippity hop hop of that song? So that Sugar Hill Gang. We're, Sugar we'll Hill talk Gang. a little bit about that song. It is called Rappers Delight. And that is the one that often gets the credit. But what I want to dispel that myth. I think that there is a different song, that if this song did not exist, we would not have 
hip-hop as the commercial force that it is today, okay? I'm not giving this person credit for creating hip-hop. Don't misunderstand me. But I think if this song didn't exist, we would not have the hip-hop subculture that we do in the same way. And, and it's this song. All right. There is no Christmas like a home Christmas. Oh, my God. What? It's Perry Como. There's no Christmas like a home Christmas. This is the song that, that helped inadvertently birth hip-hop. I am about to blow your mind. Are you Man, ready for I just this? Thought you were going to just say Run DMC and Jam Master Jay because that's no. the answer. No, it's Perry okay. Como. It's Perry Como. All right. Perry Como. Right. Now, again, take, I, take me take me down this white person fantasy. <laughs> white people invented hip hop. That's not what I'm saying. Did. That is. Not, I want to ah. be very clear. It's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Perry Como did not invent hip hop, but no. in the in the scheme of the story, if this Perry Como song did not exist. I question whether or not hip-hop would have evolved in the same way. I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened. I'm not saying that he had anything to do with actual hip-hop. None of that. But there is an argument to be made here, and I'm fully prepared to convince you. And as you said, blow my mind. I'm, I'm ready. And this is not... By the way... If you're listening for the first time, I never know when this shit's going to happen. Like, I don't you know. It's like, this is, this is fascinating and fun. So, okay. So, but go ahead, buddy. Let's start with this guy named Rocky. Actually, Robert Ford Jr. is what his mom calls him. His pals called him Rocky. This dude way under the radar. If, if you go right now and look for, for Robert Ford Jr., you, you're not even going to find a Wikipedia page, right? But he's an interesting and fascinating case in music history because he was an influencer and a game changer, but he wasn't a label guy or a producer initially. He was a journalist. Now, fun fact about me, I have a journalism degree. I'm a fan of journalists, especially wide-eyed, idealistic, aspiring journalists. Those that are wide-eyed as opposed to, you know, relying on slouchy cynicism as a lot of journalists do later in life. I also like the Uh, ones with a lot of, I I like go get them hustle. You know, I like the journalist-driven movies about these guys that break the story, right? All the presidents yeah. made onward. Yeah, yeah. And there's that certain hustle. Uh, there's a there's a gentleman who I've got acquainted with recently, a sports journalist. And we, I said, hey, did you work with this person or this person? And he's like, oh, yeah, I work with them. They're really nice. And I'm an acquaintance with the other person, but he didn't have the hustle. Oh, uh, yeah. Period. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. It's a lot so of hustle. Yeah, and and this guy is a great example of that. His his uh his gig in the seventies is he's working for Billboard magazine, right? He gets this <laughs> he gets okay. this job covering black music. That's literally how they explained it. And remember, okay. Billboard is really a trade publication that monitors record sales, right? That's really what it is. Now that we hear about it, is sort of we put it like in the same category as Rolling Stone or whatever, but. It yeah. really exists for the record industry. It's like a trade magazine. So one day, a coworker of Rocky's shows him there's a weird anomaly in sales figures for certain record shops in certain neighborhoods in New York City. All these old records are starting to sell. Old R&B, old funk, it's moving off the shelves. But really just in these certain areas. So... 
He's a good journalist. He's got that go-get-him hustle. So he goes to the Bronx, and he meets this guy in the Bronx named Cool, named cool Herc, K-O-O-L. Cool Herc. How did H-E-R-C. we get to Cool Herc? Wait, just right Freaky. there. Rocky Ford to Cool Herc, man, one degree. So I, I, I like that you recognize that name. Hip-hop heads know him. He's a forefather of the genre. And what Rocky Ford uncovers in this conversation with, hip, with uh, Cool Herc is that there are dudes like Herc in these areas who are essentially making new music out of old music, right? So this is the setup for the birth of hip-hop. These dudes are taking this music and finding ways to cut and dice and slice and, and make it something else. Rocky writes this article. It is, it, it is published in July 1st, 1978, that issue of Billboard. It's considered to be the first coverage of hip-hop's emergence in a mainstream publication. Here's the title of the article. B-Beats Bombarding Bronx. I love the editor that approved that. Mobile DJ starts something with oldie R&B discs. All right? All right. Now, here's something fun in the show notes. I actually found, like, Google Doc, re- like, not recreations, but, like, photographs of the publication. So, like, if you want to go read it in its original form, you can pull this up and look at it. It's quite the artifact. So. Awesome. After this, Rocky now sort of has realizes he has the scene to keep an eye on, and there's trends to be watching. So he becomes the guy that covers this stuff for a major publication. He's the voice for the emergence of hip hop for Billboard. Yeah. So you had a guy whose beat was 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 basically putting forth to everybody what was happening. Yeah, you read about this guy, and people will say, like, Rocky Ford was at everything. He was in the mix. As hip-hop was emerging, he was going to these clubs, he was meeting everybody, it was all happening, and he was there for it. He'll publish another piece in May of 1979, it's called, quote, Jive-Talking New York DJs Rapping Away in Black Discos. Now, this article basically explains how rap is becoming a thing. Again, another photo preservation of this in the show notes if you want to see it, but to summarize, Rocky explains, now just imagine this, imagine going back to the 70s, and you're a guy who's watching something new that's not happening anywhere else in the country or world. And, it, and everybody's dancing. And everybody's dancing. And, and then you have to write words to explain what's happening in the club on Friday night. Right? That's hard regardless, even if people are familiar with the music. It's really weird when it's yeah. a new phenomenon. Right, because there's new instrumentation. The song structures are totally different. Like the how the songs are put together. Well, like yeah, and so of, well, yeah, it's totally. everything. It's brand new. So it's all brand new. It's is a it was an art form that was created. It's a it's a it's American. It's like it's an American art form that was created. Um, that started in the Bronx. It's so weird. And so in July of '78, he writes the article explaining the music side of it. In May of '79, he writes this that now is is introducing this idea of someone talking very quickly over the top of what the DJs are doing. And it's interesting too because what this is how he paints it. And this is I had to go read the article to understand this. But he basically says what's happening in black dance clubs in New York at the time is what he calls a reemergence of the kind of fast talking that R&B DJs used to do on the radio. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, that's interesting. No, I've never thought about that being the beginning of rap. But basically what's happening 
is you have these DJs spinning records and then they're realizing that they don't have something happening on stage to, to, to sort of entice the crowd and, and invent a live element. And so they're recruiting these people who are really good at hyping up the crowd and talking quickly. And that's creating a scene of its own and people are wow. showing up for it. I want to, Hey, I want to give a shout out. There's no way I, if there's no way he's going to hear about it, but man, I hope someone tells him I said this. I want to give a shout out to Sterl the Pearl. There's a guy who's a, he's a DJ originally. And when I was in college, he had a show. It was on uh, Friday nights, Saturday nights. I can't remember whatever, but it was on a cassette. So that's how long ago it was. Um, and it was a show that was completely mixed and just phenomenal. Crazy. Like, it's something that should have been on air in multiple markets or whatever. And now Sterl the Pearl, he on Saturdays during the fall, he's he's like he's got the microphone in Nayland Stadium in Knoxville, like in front of ninety thousand people. <laughs> so he's like that guy. He's a DJ in a football stadium. Yeah, I mean, this scene takes off so fast that, and we're gonna get to this, but basically. As people start to realize the commercial potential of it, the the rappers themselves don't understand why anyone would want to record what they're doing. So I've never thought about this before, but I read things that said that basically when the first few folks are sort of grabbed by these sort of entrepreneurial spirits and said, hey, we can record this and make this a style of music, they see it almost like emceeing an event. Right. So like mm. it's I MC a lot of events. You've emceed events before. And yeah. if someone came to me and said, we want to record you emceeing an event and sell it, I'd be like, that doesn't make any sense because it's all about the moment we're creating. Right. And so they see it as this momentary thing. And the idea of capturing it and making it something that lives outside of the moment doesn't make sense at first. So it really takes some forward thinking folks to to thread this needle for people. And this whole wow. time this is happening. I mean, have you ever heard it explained that way? No, and and it's so fascinating to think about it because I guess there's you know there's parts about hip hop you know there's obviously there's parts about hip hop I'm never going to understand or learn learn about like later and later as I get older, but like I've never thought about how conceptually it would be difficult to explain it to anyone right. from the get go right. when it was starting right and so to explain what it is is like well it's it's like. MC, like DJs, but they're 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 telling stories on top of records, and there's a guy that's got a record player, and he scratches it. I mean, um, it's bizarre, right? Like if you have to try all to think of that, of, sounds all that sounds fucking crazy. Sounds right? crazy. And Rocky is the guy. He's covering this music. He's obsessively following this music, and he's serving as a, this very important role that he doesn't realize he's serving at the time. I don't think as an observer and chronicler of music history, but he's not making much money. Uh public service announcement journalists to this day incredibly lowly paid uh and and rocky at this time is just shy of 30 years old and he comes home one night from i'm probably from seeing some awesome music happening in a club in, in the bronx and he gets news from his girlfriend they are about to be parents and oh. rocky starts doing math so he's making ends meet on his own but his billboard salary is not going to cut it when this woman and their child are put to the tab. So he's got to figure something out and he's got to figure it out quick. So the next part of the story, I, I would like to ask your permission to take some liberties in the way I tell this because I only know the end result, but I'd like to imagine 
this way I'm going to paint this, that this is how it happened. All right? Are you okay with this yeah. if I take a, a you, little bit of... Well, you, well you've, you've now just asked, asked the audience and not just me if you can take some liberties. So you're going to take some liberties to explain this? I'm just... I'm, I'm going to paint colors around the cold hard facts. Here's what I envision, Okay. So I think Rocky's at his desk at the billboard office one day, and he's lamenting this situation, right? He's got his guys around, and they're I'd like to imagine they're all smoking cigarettes because it's the 70s. And Rocky's whining, and he's, what should I do? How will I support this family? Blah, 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 blah. And Rocky's whining drifts to the back of the office, and out of the stacks wanders the resident old guy. Right, we've all worked in an office where there's the one old guy that keeps to himself, but every once in a while he wanders out of the back and drops pearls of wisdom. Again, I'm taking a few liberties here, but I I do know that Mickey Addy worked with Rocky Ford, and at some point Mickey and Addy, Mickey Addy and Rocky Ford have a conversation, and Mickey, again, in in my recreation of this, is probably getting tired of hearing Rocky complain. And Mickey probably like bums a cigarette. And I like to think that when he settles there among Rocky and his younger pals, everybody gets really quiet. And they lean in, waiting to hear what this old guy who never talks is going to say. And after a few drags, Mickey Addy reveals the solution to Rocky Ford's dilemma. He says something like, You think they pay me enough with this damn magazine? Hell no, they don't. I'm here because I love the industry. I'm here for the thrill. But I made my money back when I was a songwriter. Back in 1951, I wrote a song called There's No Christmas Like a Home Christmas. Oh, wow. And I'll be goddamned if Perry fucking Como didn't record it. And you know why this is good? And he leans in and Rocky Ford's looking at him and all his buddies are looking at him like, what? Because, you ignorant young bucks, you write Perry a regular hit. You might get paid once. You might get paid twice. <laughs> but if you write Perry a Christmas hit, you get paid every goddamn year. Rocky Ford will say in interviews years later that when Mickey Addy tells him this, quote, that was my inspiration. <laughs> Rocky Ford is going to write a Christmas song. But Rocky Ford doesn't know Perry Como. He really only has ends in one place. That crazy scene that is slowly boiling over out of New York. So Rocky Ford decides that he is going to produce the world's very first rap Christmas song. Oh, so it's it's back to Run DMC and Jam Master J? No. If my so version of this, them. this is before them. Okay. If my version of the scene that I just described is even close to true. Then sitting at that table next to Rocky on that fateful day is another billboard writer, and his name is J.B. Moore. J.B.'s a little older than Rocky, but he's not as old as Mickey Addy. He'd been in Vietnam, okay, and he got this job at Billboard, and to him, this job at Billboard is a means to an end because J.B. Moore wants to write a book about his wartime experience. So he's going to make some money, and then he's going to quit the job and concentrate on writing the book and live off his nest egg. But when he hears this advice from Mickey Addy, and he listens to Rocky spout off about rap holiday music, he can't get this idea out of his head. So he doesn't say anything to Rocky at first, but he starts scheming in his own brain about what a Christmas rap song might sound like. 
few days later, Rocky comes home from an outing. Again, I like to imagine he's been in a club and heard a great rapper and a great DJ. And he notices the answering machine has a message on it. And he hits the playhead. And he hears J.B. Moore, the weirdo he works next to, a billboard, frantically rattling off lines from a Yuletide-themed rap song. This is weird. Rocky's stoked because these bars that JB has written fit exactly what he has in mind. And JB has even more to offer because he's so excited about this. Remember how I said he was saving money for that great American war novel? Mm. He tells Rocky, I actually think the better immediate investment would be trying to make this Christmas rap dream happen. Because if what Mickey Addy says is true, we're going to get paid for years. So I've got 10 grand. Let's make this song. So suddenly, Rocky has an idea. He has a partner. He has most of a song. And he has money. But he just needs an artist. He doesn't have a rapper. I can't wait to lay this Christmas hit on me because I don't know what the hell it is, man. I don't. So, so he's been covering the emergence of hip-hop. He knows the spots. He knows the DJs. So he starts approaching them. Approaches, and he, he starts making a list. Here's, here's the big names that I want to bring in on this, right? But while he's in the midst of this process, and I like to think he's thinking about this when this happens. I don't know if he is or not. But he's like, during these weeks, while this is like a project he's working on, he's on this bus to Jamaica, Queens. And he notices this kid in the, like, the bus station putting flyers up. And he looks at the flyer, and it's for a rap show. And then he looks down the way, and he sees the kid. There's like, he's putting more of them up down the way. So he walks up to this guy, and he... he Asks him what's going on. And the dude intros himself. He says, my name's Joey Simmons. And I'm actually just out here working for my older brother. My older brother, Russ. And Rocky thinks, a guy promoting rap shows? He'll know what's up. So he goes, I want to talk to your brother. And so Rocky Ford goes to find a 21-year-old kid named Russell Simmons. Russell Simmons is a promoter at this point, and his promo team was three dudes deep. There's Russ, there's a guy named Rudy Toppin, and there's a younger dude, a 19-year-old kid who's figuring out how to rap. So he's a lot of times going up on stage with the DJ at these shows, getting things started. And his name's Kurt Walker. But when he goes on stage, he's got an on-stage name. His stage name is Curtis Blow. Oh my God! What? So okay, I okay. Have you okay? How how deep into Curtis Blow's catalog have you been into, Brian? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one at you. I mean, I know basketball. Tell me, what do you got? Yeah, okay. I was gonna say, hey, do you not know basketball? It's my favorite sport. I like the way they dribble up and down the court. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had, I had, a, I had, a, I had like, I remember I had two Curtis Blow cassettes, um, and I had the one with basketball, and then there was another one. Um, I don't know. I, it's like I, I realized I was listening to something that was, I, I heard it at after I heard Run DMC, to be honest. And Houdini, I think I heard Houdini. Right, right. And, well, and, and if and, you listen to this now, like if I play Curtis Blow for my son who likes hip hop, he yeah. his first question will always be, "How old is this?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because it doesn't sound modern. 
Right. And, and that, and, and I hate to go back to Run DMC, but like, it's, that's just, I think is a starting point for me and some other people. Uh, maybe if anyone's around 48, listen to the show. <laughs> um, sorry, fuck it. But like that first Run DMC record is like, has a drum machine and it's like, and there's a keyboard. Boom, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. And there's keys. Right. And then it just has the drum, just the drum machine. And so when Rocky and JB go to this show to bear witness to, to Russell and meet Russell, they also bear witness to Curtis Blow in his element because he's live on stage that night. And when they see him doing this on stage, they decide they don't need those bigger names that they were pursuing. They think, well, probably with a little cajoling from Russell Simmons, that Curtis Blow is the perfect rapper to be on their big idea. So they all go back to JB's apartment and they start working on putting this whole thing together. And they, they've got some musicians and they've got Curtis and I'm sure Russell's there. And they ask Curtis, what do you want the music to sound like? Like, we've got the bars. What do you think in your head the music should be? And he thinks about it for a moment and he says, I want you to get us right between Sheik and James Brown. I And that is what they do. And this is what comes out. All right. Came flying over here. Well, the hawk was out, snow was on the ground. Folks stayed in to party down. The beat was thumping on the box. And I was dancing in my socks. And the drummer played at a solid pace. And the taste of the bass was in my face. And the guitar player lay down the heavy layer of the funky junkie rhythm of the disco beat. The guy with the started to participate that's Christmas rapping. Oh, that's what. Oh, Chris, yeah. Now I remember the title, and I, I just haven't heard it since I was a little kid. That's just a crazy long time ago. I want to know: Did those same session guys just work with him all the time? Because he had, he. It sounded like he had songs like that. Like the the bass line was really up heavy in the mix, you know, and then like. You know, it's like he had songs that kind of set the instrumentation so, using the same track. Same I mean, kind of here's, music. here's the thing in in I almost got completely off course in researching this particular episode. And, and let me say that I've had this episode on deck since 2021. So I discovered this story a year ago and was like, oh, we got to do it around Christmas. And we already had Band-Aid ready. And so and, and, I've sat and, on it. And dude, I'm so glad that you did. It, because it, it's at the so beginning, good. I was like Perry Como, which is freaking <laughs> ridiculous. It's so true, it's true. I mean, like they literally get the idea to make a Christmas rap song because of the guy who wrote the Perry Como song. I want to be very clear that I'm not saying Perry Como had anything to do with this. But yeah, Perry Como ain't writing those songs, man. No, no, no. Cause so because he's because he's, he's you know why? Because he's dead. So, so listen here's the other thing that got me distracted in this story is, and we may have, we'll probably have to do it as a full episode at some point. It's the Nile Rogers of it all. Like Nile Rogers and Sheik, maybe one of the most influential bands of all time. And they get very little credit for that. No, they don't. There's no connecting those dots. Is there? So, but you hear it there. So he's ripping off Sheik. Right, yeah. and you heard another one bites the dust in that bass break. Doom, 
Doom, yeah. doom, do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah, this is pre-Queen. I mean, not pre-Queen, but this is pre-Another One Bites the Dust, right? Like, all of these, and, I mean, Sheik is the basis for Blondie's rapture. Like, I mean, there is this massive amount of output that comes from, basically, from, like, one Sheik song. But, in general, if you walk up to someone on the street and ask them their opinion on Nile Rodgers and Sheik, they're not going to have one. And right, they they're not they're not given a full uh, shake or so do, but there is, I think they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There is this but, amazing, yeah, they are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There is this amazing video, amazing video, and I'm blanking on the name of the publication that did it, but they do this thing where they go crate digging with musicians, where they literally take them to a record store in their hometown and let them just dig through the records. And there's one with Nile Rodgers. I watched it for like 20 minutes the other day. I couldn't stop watching it. Where he's he's like every record in this store, man. I know every record in this store. And he'll just like walk by a bin and just pick one up and be like, man, one time me and David Bowie were at the beach. And you're like, holy crap. I mean, Nile Rodgers yeah. is a fascinating, fascinating character. Um, yeah. And man, my introduction to David Bowie was the let's um, let's dance record. And that's, that's so where I learned about he, him. He there. tells the story in this video that, and I've got to find it and put it in the show notes because otherwise I'm just a terrible, terrible podcast host. But the he tells this story about how that song was an acoustic ballad. So like it was literally like I think the M Ward cover of it. If you've ever heard the M Ward version of Less Dance, which is awesome, um, I think it basically used like that was the original song, sort of. And Niall Rogers heard it and he was like, No, no, no. He's like, I got this. And he's like showing him how he's going to like sample in the guitar style that he does and use the bass and all this stuff. And they create Let's Dance. But all this to say, it's hard to talk about the birth of hip hop without at least mentioning and name checking Nile Rodgers because even Curtis Blow says, let's ape Nile Rodgers, basically, like when yeah. they ask him what they, what he wants his song to sound like. But And Rick James. Or James Brown. <laughs> James Brown. So the the first half of this song, <laughs> lyrically, is the Christmas nonsense that JB wrote up and left on Rocky's answering machine. But the second half, and this song is long, by the way. If you if you're not familiar, this song is eight minutes long. Yeah, that's epic. And yeah. this the second half of it is Curtis just like retrofitting the sort of stuff he used to do in the club. So they just made it into like a longer track. Yeah, it's interesting. So the day like that wasn't ever a thought about really. I guess there had to be a radio edit, right? Like, well, so th- this story gets more interesting when it comes to that. Blow remembers cutting this entire eight-minute song as if it were being performed live in a club. Oh, now yeah. remember, there's no precedent. Rap hasn't been recorded yet. This is like the first time it's really like somebody's trying to put it on wax. So, yeah, this song with is, a gimmick too. With a gimmick. So the song is written, wrapped, and recorded. But to your point, how do you get it? into other people's ears. Is anyone going to listen to this outside of the Bronx? And that's the next part of this saga. How do you get the gatekeepers to release it? So Rocky Ford, JB Moore, probably Russell Simmons. They go meet with labels. They go to 22, 22 record labels who, (laughs) who tell them to get the hell out. There's a 2001 interview with Rocky Ford where he's asked why he thinks so many major forces passed on this opportunity. And he makes a really interesting point slash speculation. He says, he thinks, and he I want to be clear, Rocky Ford is a black man. He says, 
he thinks the black executives, they were the ones who didn't want to mess with rap, not the white guys. Now, what happens, I think, in these meetings is the black guy is, is pulled out to meet with the black guy, right? So these black guys come in with his quote-unquote black music. We've already talked about how Billboard was, was segmenting it that way in their publication. Oh, they, yeah, and every, yeah, everything was segmented and really segregated and, and, and so, like it was early on. This is not my thought. This is coming from this Rocky Ford interview. Rocky Ford says he thinks black executives didn't want to mess with rap because it reminded them of the ghetto. In a wow. sense, it felt either exploitative or at least embarrassing to them. Now, I can't speak to that. I'm just reading what Rocky Ford says in this interview. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Around this time, Where's- there's other savvy people starting to see the commercial potential of this scene, though. Right? So this this is not happening in a vacuum. Can we take a quick... Can we take a detour for a few minutes? Is that okay? We ha- do we ever take detours? Uh, let's take a right turn. Right turn. Okay, right, so we it, we're still talking about hip-hop. I want to go back to this. You mentioned at the top, I said, what's the song that birthed hip-hop? And you said, Rapper's Delight, Sugar Hill Gang. Right, yeah. Let's talk about Sylvia Robinson. Do you, do you know the name off just off the top of your head if I say that? Nah, that's unfamiliar to me. Fascinating figure in musical history. Often referred to as the mother of hip-hop. And... We probably, I keep saying, Nile Rodgers deserves an episode of this show. Sylvia Robinson probably deserves an episode of this show. Every single person of a certain age listening to this show, especially if you consider yourself part of Gen X, Murdoch, you know Sylvia from something she did in the 1950s. Mickey and Sylvia. Oh, jeez. For God's sake. Mickey and Sylvia are most famous. They're a duo. 1957, they put out a song called Love is Strange. It was a hit in 1957, but it became a hit again in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And you do you, you want to spoil why? That's uh, for Dirty Dancing. From Dirty Dancing. That is the How Do You Call Your Lover Boy song. <laughs> so for yeah, people who are listening and nothing's ringing the bell, How Do You Call Your Lover Boy? Yeah. That is Love is Strange by Mickey and Sylvia. And, and sleep, uh, Sleepwalk was a really... It wasn't maybe necessarily as big of a hit, but that's oh, that's a great song, and they've they've used that in motion pictures too. So, um, other fun notes about Mickey and Sylvia, really quick. Mickey from Kentucky, that's fun. Uh, I didn't know that. So, also, Mickey taught Sylvia in the 1950s, a black woman in the 1950s, to play guitar. So, if you listen to Love Is Strange, you'll hear that it's very trebly, right? It's very guitar heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's because they got two people playing guitar on it. And if you, it's mm-hmm. really striking to go look up pictures of them, these old sepia toned photos from the 1950s of a black woman rocking a big guitar. Her success as a performer doesn't end in the 50s. She'll go solo as Sylvia in the 70s. She writes this song for Al Green, and he turns it down. Because he says it's too sexy for his religious convictions. So she just records it. At the the end of the decade, she has this idea that she's going to record what's happening in the clubs around New York. But remember, I I alluded to this earlier. Everybody in the clubs around New York, they don't see what they're doing from the rap end as a commercially viable product. They see it as live entertainment. So when you say that she's going to record what's happening in the club, so specifically, what do you mean? She's recording their sets or no, she wants to record a rap song. Oh, so she wants to bring them in the studio, do the, do the gig. So this is all happening at the same time as the Christmas rap and stuff is happening, right? So this is 79, like 
summer, spring, summer into the fall of 79. She finds three guys. Michael Wright, who goes by Wonder Mike. Henry Jackson, who goes by Big Bang Hank. And Guy O'Brien, who goes by Master G. And they will end up recording and releasing a song that they will call Rapper's Delight. And they will put it on her entity, which she calls Sugar Hill Records. Thus, they become the Sugar Hill Gang. Perfect. And so this is... It's like a dis- and it's a disco song, kind of. It's yeah. literally happening. Well, I mean, we, we've already talked about Chic. I mean, Chic is considered a disco group, right? So, yeah. Right. Uh, so that's, that's a song you could play in those clubs, you know? So the, here's the difference, though, between what's happening with uh, Sugar Hill and Sylvia and what is about to happen for Rocky and Russell and Curtis. So wow, dude. My, my, my mind's blown now. Okay, keep it going, dude. Sylvia took it in her own hands as an industry insider who understood the way things worked, and she put it out on her own, right? So it's, this is not on a label or a major label. It's on her label. But for Rocky, Russell, and Curtis, even though they've talked to 22 labels who have told them no, a lot of them being black folks, there is a British guy a white dude named John Staines, who's he, people like him at his record label because he just signed this band called Dire Straits. He's at Mercury Records. Yeah. And he hears what's happening with Curtis Blow, and he loves it. So he takes it to the office, and he gathers everybody around at Mercury Records, and they all hate it. <laughs> so he has he has to throw his weight around. He convinces the label to play to take the plunge, but they make a funky deal. Here's the deal that they make. <laughs> it's gonna be awful. Okay. Mercury says, listen, we'll release a single. If the single sells thirty thousand copies, then we'll do a second single. And if that single, and I, I, I like imagine this as somebody just making up numbers. If that single sells 100,000 copies, we'll let Curtis Blow do an album. So it's like how, like, how it's totally offensive, really. The future of commercial hip hop was literally resting on a song about partying with Santa in Harlem. So it's written. It's wrapped, it's recorded, it's on a label, but how do you get people to listen to it? Just like you said, how do you get it on the radio? It's, and it's eight minutes. Yeah. So for that story, I had to dig through a brief oral history of sorts. Hip Hop Evolution published this where they went to Curtis and they went to Russell separately and they asked for their versions of how all of this went down. How did this song right. come about? This is in the show notes if you want to go deep diving, it's great. And it's a doozy. So, I told you. Russell and Curtis, two-thirds of this party-promoting trio that they've made. And while they've been doing this, they've met all these dudes all over the city. Including everybody in radio. Because they need radio guys to promote their shows. So, there's this one particular radio guy who has a lot of sway. And his name is Frankie Crocker. He works at WBLS. So, for the rest of this... I'm not going to summarize. I'm going to read you the literal words from Curtis Blow. All right. Awesome. Frankie used to hang out after work at a club called Leviticus. 
He used to come like clockwork every time he got off work, and he would go straight in the club and have a couple of drinks and then go home. We all knew this. So one day, Russell says, look, if we're going to make this song work, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take this record, and we're going to pay the DJ at Leviticus to play it. But we're going to wait for Frankie to come in. We're going to wait for him to sit at the bar. We're going to wait for him to get his first drink. And then after that first drink, we're going to have the DJ play the record. But we're going to have a whole college crew in the house. And we're just going to lose our minds when that record comes on. Again, this is Curtis talking. So dig it. It happened. Like clockwork. The whole college crew. The whole college. 150 kids in this club, right? Wednesday, 6 p.m. Here comes Frankie. Sits at the bar. Takes a drink. Me and Russell in the crowd, we in the back, right? So we see him take his drink, and we go, now, let's go, let's go. We gave the DJ the high sign. The DJ puts on Christmas rapping. The crowd goes crazy. Everybody's dancing. Everybody's doing their best move. And Frankie's like, what is this? He got up. He went over to the DJ. He says, what's the name of this song? And the guy says, Christmas rapping. It's the artist right there. And he points at him, Curtis Blow. Russell then goes over and says, Hey, I'm Russell Simmons. I want to introduce you to my artist, Curtis. We're in college. We're just trying to make it. So please take a copy of the record. And he shook my hand. And he says, nice to meet you, young Curtis. And then he goes back to BLS Radio the next day. Drive time, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Frankie. Hey, I met this young man last night at Leviticus. Very nice young college student. His name is Curtis Blow. I told him I'd play his record. And here it is. And boom, he played Christmas rapping on the radio. And nailed it. Oh my gosh, because people used to listen to the radio nonstop. Now, Christmas Rappin' itself isn't a giant runaway hit or anything, but it was a street-level smash for eight months after Christmas. And it sells... (laughs) Remember the number I told you it needed to sell? How many many copies did it sell? 350,000. Oh, wow. It it needed to sell 30,000. It It sold 350. And and forget about these, these white... These white assholes like telling a, a guy how how many records he has to sell. But the thing the thing to me that's interesting is that this is what year? This is nineteen seventy nine. Like, this is seventy nine. Like, just think about the hip hop that you've listened to and when when that came out. I mean, the seventy nine. Like, it's not even the eighties yet. And three hundred thousand copies of a of a record from a new genre is is remarkable, and it shows how ultimately Curtis Blow is such a major influence in in the genre because he was there first. Like he had he planted a flag for people. He he didn't end up having a really long career, and he wasn't you know he ultimately like if you think like Run DMC like it's kind of the same gig, and that was like five years later after that. Oh, he does. Um, he does all right, though. And so here's the thing: this means he gets to do the second song. So in May of <laughs> in May of 1980, right. song number two, they they let him do a song called "The Breaks." Ah, oh, the breaks. These are the breaks. Now remember, it has to sell a hundred thousand copies. It sells eight hundred and fifty thousand copies. <laughs> Which means Curtis is now a recording artist for real. He, he's got a he's got a gold record. So this yeah. is how consequential Curtis Blow is. You you've undersold mm. him slightly. Some of his stage gear has been added to the collections of the Smithsonian's National Museum of uh, 
African American history and culture. And wow, this is this is true. A recording of Christmas rapping is housed at National Museum of American History. Oh, that's so the National amazing. Museum of American History. At, hey, and and based on this story that started with Perry Como, dude, why wouldn't it be? It's un- mean, like, it's unbelievable. Now listen, against all odds. One of the craziest schemes I have ever heard of works. Rocky Ford wrote and produced a Christmas rap song and in the meantime launches one of the most important and profitable sides of commercial music ever created. If it wasn't for Rocky Ford, this would have happened differently. I don't know how differently or how long it would have taken, but it would have been different. I didn't think that this would go directly to the heart and soul of like the beginning of it, but that this I knew really- you thought I was full of shit, but dude, I'm telling you, it's Mickey Addy writes a stupid Christmas song, drops it on his buddy who's having a freak out in the break room and says, yeah, man, write a Christmas song. That'll solve all your problems. And that guy goes and freaking does it. This is an amazing story. And then he will go on and have a career himself, right? Like so, they'll produce the first five Curtis records. JB Moore yeah. and and Rocky Ford will will do the first five Curtis records, and that's not where they stop. Rocky and JB, I'm about to blow your mind. They they'll produce Rap and Rodney. <laughs> oh, holy crap! That yeah, that's All, terrible. Also, gonna, also, okay. they'll produce City of Crime, the song from Dragnet. That Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd do. What? Oh, I don't even know what the hell that is, dude. That's what? Oh, I don't know if I, I don't want to know what, what that All right, is. You, you want to know one more thing about how they changed music history? Well, how's w- that? One more fun side note about the influence of Christmas rapping. They press it to vinyl. And remember, they told me you can only do one song. So what are they going to do with the second side? So they, they got a second side of vinyl to fill. And Simmons, I think it was Simmons... Someone smart suggests, oh, here's what you do. Just put the song without the lyrics on the other side. And then what it allows is Uh, Curtis's DJs can just spin the second side of the record when he goes into a club to perform it. Amazing. And this will be a trend that will continue in hip hop for many years. The instrumental beat side. That's that is so I never, ever, ever thought about that. I remember B sides having instrumental and, and wondering what the utility or and it's like, you know, I just didn't know I wasn't going to hip hop clubs, man. I was, I had a mullet and I was just a kid. I had no idea what I was doing. Listen, that's a heartwarming Christmas story right there. As Hey, this is what a freaking great episode. <laughs> dude, dude. I've been sitting Holy on this episode shit. for a year. I have I, been sitting on this story and not telling you this story for 365 mm. days. Oh my God. Oh man. Thank you. By the way, I'm a Gen Xer. And so, you know, it's like I got to see, I got to see hip hop come from this very new thing, to almost being gimmicky or whatever, um, to to morph into what it is now, which is, you know, an extraordinary art form. Well, and it it is interesting because as authentic as hip hop has become, and as uh, and as much as it's sold as being a product of authenticity, it starts. And gets its commercial push from two very deliberate, you know, intentions. From Sylvia Robinson's intention of creating the Sugar Hill Gang, which was not a rap group. It was something she created. 
and then Rocky Ford creating a Christmas rap song so he could get paid. <laughs> oh man, it's it's so, so fantastic. All right, I'm man. gonna go. I'm gonna go listen to old school hip hop uh, <laughs> here. It's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna straight up. This whiskey went down fast. So I'm gonna. Go <laughs> well, ahead. hey, listen. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to the show. Remember, you can find us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. You can uh, hit us up via the email at uh, We Are the Story Guys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And what should people keep doing until next time? Merry, Merry New Year. And. Uh, Happy holidays and keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.